Hello, friends, and thank you for listening. I asked my next guest to come on because his story truly had an impact on myself. In this conversation, we talk about the impact of role models and the difference they make on an individual's direction in life. He is an amazing friend, a brilliant thinker. Please give it up for Trevor Johnson. And we're live. I think that you are an amazing role model. And you, I've learned so much about you over the past couple of years. We first met through restorative justice. I've learned a lot about some of the adversity you faced as a child and growing up in a completely different world. I met you in more of a university atmosphere and then learned about all of your background and all of the experiences you've had that led you to that point. And I think that that's what part of this podcast is about, is explaining to people that The starting point isn't always pretty. It's not always the place you imagine it. Yet, you get to this point where everything's so much different in a university context, and we don't really talk about how we got there. And I think that that's a really useful step because most of our interactions were already so normalized in a university setting that we were talking about current events, policies, stuff like that. And we didn't get into the background of who we were until almost later on. And so I think that that's something that people can use to motivate themselves to go to university is to realize that most of the people there got there from a very different starting place. There's a few different moments that I remember with with your parents because you grew up up north. Right. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, which is a very interesting religion. If you want to call it a religion, some like to call it a cult. Um, Either or works. And as you can imagine, a young, curious Trevor at around the age of 11, 12, exploring the world, it didn't really fit the Jehovah's Witness narrative that my parents uh, followed. And that uh, definitely caused some issues at an early age. My father, he was also really struggling with mental health issues. And uh, in Prince George in particular, in 80s and 90s, I I don't know if in Prince George in particular, but just at that time, mental health had a lot of stigma to it. So it was something that the family tried to hide and it it wasn't very well understood. So that added to the issues. There was was some violence in the home at times. Not awesome times. Yeah, fair enough. I I was I grew up Catholic and went to catechism, and for me that was a that was a tough time to go through because they were living a completely different reality than I was. In that most of the community members were two parent families, lots of children. Some of them lived on farms. It was really like a wealthy community, and I had no idea what that was like. And so it was all these ideals I was being told about and that I should live this way and then having to survive. It's a completely different approach. And the people I'm dealing with daily are not that supportive or not that friendly. And then you go to church and they're saying, well, you should be like this all the time. And that's great, but I'm not living in in the same world you guys are. When I go back downtown Chilliwack and you guys drive back up to Promontory or Sardis or wherever you're from, your communities are completely different than mine, so your messages aren't resonating the same way. I don't know if you experienced that at all. I found that the Jehovah's Witnesses actually were quite similar. Um, it was when I went out into the community that it was really, I was different. Yeah. Um, not allowed to go to birthday parties, not allowed to associate with anyone who wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. I remember neighbors 
um, neighbor kids coming over and asking if I could play and me like just pleading with my parents and they'd be like, nope, unless they find Jehovah. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's in, in school sitting uh, every Easter, Christmas, anytime there's a birthday celebration, Valentine's Day, uh, getting sent out into the hallway and just sitting there while everybody got to like eat cupcakes and have parties. Uh, so that made me a lot, made me feel a lot different uh, than my peers. Um, knocking, you know, Saturdays instead of playing sports or stuff, we were knocking on people's doors. And um, yeah, there's a lot of, I got picked on a lot early on um, over it at school. It was obvious I didn't fit in. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly enough, I, I didn't fit in at school, but and the Jehovah's Witness uh, religion, I didn't get along with the kids there either. Yeah. Uh, so I just didn't really seem to fit in anywhere growing up. What was that like? What was the interactions between, what were the differences? Um, honestly, the Jehovah's Witness kids were so mean. <laughs> really? They were brutal. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, I remember there was, uh, my parents' best friends, there were these two brothers and they just made it their mission to try to, every time we got together, they wanted to make me cry, or at least that's how I interpreted it. Um, maybe like the, the weirdest thing I remember was when they would hold me down on this block, um, by the fire pit and the older brother would come running with the ax to come and, you know, pretend to chop me. And then the younger brother would quickly move me and the ax would chop on the block. And I remember trying to explain this to my parents, <laughs> but again, it, the person was an elder and, you know, it just, yeah. So I just didn't fit in and it just, I just, uh, I found a lot of, um, comfort in reading. That's where, uh, when I, when I was a kid, I read, I was very, I didn't write, I didn't understand that I was academic at the time, Yeah. but I just, I, I found comfort in academics. What books were you reading back then? Um, I loved fantasy, um, back then it wasn't, um, I mean, there was nonfiction, um, anything to do with history. I loved stuff on world war two. Um, I really loved reading stuff on the Nazis yeah. uh, back then, not because I, I, I liked Nazis, but just the, the history of the Jehovah's Witness in Nazi Germany. Yeah. Um, so, and, do, you, and, do you know anything about that? Uh, a little bit, yeah, like the Purple Triangle, and they were political prisoners um, along with the Jews, um, and they, they faced a lot of adversity and death and torture, and, you know, Hitler had said he was going to wipe them off the planet. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing, and, and one of the things actually, and I still respect this about the witnesses, they could have left at any time. Um, all they had to do was sign a piece of paper saying, yeah, we say yes to Hitler and no to Jehovah, but they didn't <laughs> because they were like, no, screw you. <laughs> yeah. We don't, we don't seem to know what that's like anymore. So then from there, um, what happens after that? It hits the fan at, at home and, and at the, uh, at the church. I remember, um, when I told my parents, like, you know, guys, I am not going there anymore. I want nothing to do with it. The people are just horrific to me, like the kids. And I got friends and I just don't want anything to do with it. And my dad was like, no, like I'll drag you kicking and streaming uh, to church. And I was like, that's fine. When I walk in the door, I'm going to go up, I'm going to grab the mic and I'm just going to be like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And if someone tries to take it from me, I'm going to assault them. <laughs> so my dad called the church or the kingdom hall and was like, this is what my son said. What should I do? And of course they're like, well, don't bring him here. <laughs> yeah. I still remember that day, the day I got to stay home, the family went to church and I got to stay home. That was awesome. Probably a huge changeover. 
it was. It was, again, just recognizing that I could make change. You know, my actions or, you know, I could impact or affect what was happening around me. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember when I stopped going and none of the family was all too thrilled about it. But it was this idea that I knew what I didn't want to do. And I knew the people who were there. It wasn't like I was saying I didn't want to go and I had no idea what it was going to be like. I knew exactly what it was and I didn't fit in. I had way too many questions to be any joy to be around because the the main one that I would ask was how could someone create like hell and heaven and be both good? Like I didn't understand that and they don't have a, they're not used to questions in the Catholic church. No, no. There's no time to raise your hand and ask questions. So that was my experience. Yeah. The witnesses, they loved questions and they love answering questions. Um, for me, it was just a big part of it was like, you guys are mean and there's friends over here yeah. that aren't mean or that uh, I want to hang out with. Yeah. I didn't like being different. I, I just, the whole thing was about being different. Like you're not like them. We're different. You have to go out of your way to be different. Yeah. You learn really quickly as a kid, as a Jehovah's Witness kid, that being different isn't isn't always good. Yeah. You get picked on a lot and nobody wants to get picked on when they're a kid, right? So For sure. So what was your social group after that? Who did you start to intermingle with? Uh so it was more like the skater crowd, the 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 weed smoking crowd. Grade eight was a lot of uh skateboarding and like white zombie and pearl jam and sitting in circles smoking weed and hacky sacking. Yeah. <laughs> It was really good until I started getting like kind of like picked on again and 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 for being a skater just at the school I was at just wasn't a popular thing to be. We had a crew called the Heart Boys, some like good old boys, I guess. They didn't like the skaters. We were kind of known as the pussies. I never got beat up myself to a lot of the guys I kind of looked up to. They got beat up by the tougher guys. I did get beat up at one point. And at that point, I just started going to the, the gym. Um, Yeah, that and I got kicked out of school in grade eight. What happened there? Well, I had found some pepper spray in my mom's drawer and uh, I knew what pepper spray was, but anyway, and I was telling some of the older guys at the smoke pit about it. And they said, why don't you bring it to school and show us? I was in grade eight. And I thought at the very least, maybe I could trade it for some smokes. <laughs> yeah. So I brought it to school and I was showing the guys what it was and they're like, well, spray it. And I was like, all right. So we all stood in a line and we sprayed it away from us while a big gust of wind picked it up and blew it right back in our face. Oh, no. Yeah. They went running to the nurse. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm yelling at them. I'm like, it'll go away. You'll be able to breathe again. But they're freaking out. Yeah. Um, so sure enough, I get called to the um, office. Police are there. I get arrested for um, assault. Uh, assault with a weapon and possession of a prohibited weapon, I think. You know, it's kind of funny, like being in the system now, I'm like, those charges would never, wouldn't stick now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I got nailed 13 years old. Yeah. Totally got nailed for that and got put on probation and that really shifted everything for me. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause initially I was, I was scared. I was really scared. And I remember being in cells and this kid, I won't say his name cause he was a kid at the time. He was like, why are you scared? And I'm you know, I'm sobbing and I tell him my story and what's going to happen and what I'm afraid. And he was like, you're a kid. He's like, they can't do nothing to you. He's like, you just watch. You're going to walk out of here today. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, I did. And, and, and what he said always stuck with me. Like, I was like, I came out of there being like, fuck you guys. You yeah. can't touch me. Um, I'll do what I want. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was a very different, that changed everything for me. In what way? 
I became determined to become a thug. Um, I felt like that's how nobody could hurt me and I could get what I wanted. That probably, that makes a bit of sense because this person told you that you're kind of invincible, that there's nothing that can be done and you wanted to see what that, how does that play out? If I do push this, how far can it be pushed before there are consequences? And I just wanted to kind of be like him. I mean, here's this kid who he, he was telling me like his stories of adversity, where he came from and he had no fear. He had just this attitude of like, hey, I'm getting fed here. This is awesome. Yeah. You know, not recognizing like, hey, this kid comes from a place where he probably doesn't get to eat three square meals a day, you know, stuff like that. So I, I didn't recognize that at the time. Yeah. And just thought this, he didn't care that he was in juvie or jail sales, sales attitude. Yeah. Was something I wanted because I was so scared all the, at the time. All the time? Like, where, did that arise a lot where you were just didn't feel confident in yourself? Well, yeah, right? Just not not um, fitting in. Yeah. I just always felt like I didn't fit in. Yeah. And now you can play this out to the extreme and actually be confident in yourself and be the person in the room that is completely calm yeah. in a circumstance where most people wouldn't be. Yeah. And, and I guess I thought how to get there was by not caring. Yeah. Right? Because that's kind of how he how it just came across at that time. That's so. a lot of people today. A lot of people pretend that they don't care where they work. They don't care what they're doing. And somehow I'm supposed to believe that that's a good thing that you don't care. Like not you specifically, but people who come across that way. I think it's great to care. And when you actually show that you're invested in something, people come around to support you because it's a good thing. But we don't know that. It took me a long time to undo that, actually. Like what you're saying, absolutely. Um, caring caring about something makes us vulnerable. Yeah. And at that time, I did not want any vulnerabilities. I'd felt like I'd been vulnerable my whole life. And again, I couldn't have told you this at the time. Yeah. But looking back, I just didn't want to feel vulnerable anymore. Now, this kid kind of showed me how. Exactly. Me yeah, I went through that with communication. I was always insecure about everything else about my body, being overweight. I had so many insecurities. The one area I felt like I could control was communication. I could out-communicate you. I could find the point in your sentence that didn't make any sense and call that out and hopefully win the discussion or argument. And that was just a defense of, I have control over this very small thing and I'm going to lord it over you as much as I can. That's how I used to be. And now it's like, I would never do that because... One of the things I've learned more recently is about straw man and strong manning and steel manning a position. Okay. So if you straw man a position, it's to take the weakest point of the argument and exploit that. Where steel manning is to look at somebody's point, recognize that it's not the best, but see if you can get anything out of it. And I've switched over to that a lot more, talking to vulnerable people and realizing they're not going to perfectly explain all their problems to me. I have to kind of figure out what's going on. And that's, to me, steel manning their position and understanding exactly what they're talking about. It's hard for some people to actually communicate what they, what they mean. And even if what somebody's saying isn't exactly right, I think you can still learn something from it. And that's taken a lot of learning, but it also took a huge shift away from holding your traditional views and letting go of that idea of trying to be the best at something. And so... What was that like moving away from that? What were the steps that you went through moving away from trying to be the toughest person? That took a long time. Yeah. Because my whole teenage life was basically trying to be the tough person. Yeah. I would say it almost took um, finding my wife. Really? Yeah. Having that partner. And of course it happened before she became my wife. Yeah. It was definitely kind of learning 
undoing and learning um, and, and moving backwards and becoming vulnerable again. And it's something I'm still doing. Yeah. You know, I still can sometimes see myself snap into that 14 year old, almost that 14 year old mentality if I feel threatened but I've gotten really good at kind of recognizing it very quickly yeah, and, and deescalating myself and, and working, you know, reminding myself it's okay to be vulnerable and also recognizing that the ability to be vulnerable is strength. Yeah. That that does take strength. That the reason that I didn't want to be vulnerable is because I was so scared of the hurt. Right. So basically I was afraid, I was afraid to take a punch. Yeah. So I didn't take a punch. I didn't even get in the ring. Yeah. Um, but allowing myself to be vulnerable for me, I'm, I'm taking the hits. I'm willing to step in the ring and take the hits. Yeah. So um, uh, a big part of it was that that shift um, in, in recognizing and valuing um, vulnerability as a strength and not seeing it as a weakness. Yeah. Yeah, because you have to apply that so often that people don't even realize telling someone your story, sharing it on a podcast is opening yourself up for criticism, opening yourself up for admitting that you didn't make all the decisions you might have wished you could have made and exposing that you might have a goal that not everybody's on board with. And I think you do that really well with showing your passion for statistics and for methodology. It just comes out as this true passion that I don't have in the same way as you. And that, But that's okay because we need someone to do it. And you're really passionate about it. So there would be no one else I would rather go to about statistics and methodology than you because it's a true passion and it's something where people could say, why do you bother with that? But it's something you're passionate about. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, I mean, I think statistics are kind of a symptom or a byproduct of the methodology. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely no mathematician. Yeah. <laughs> do love, st I, I love being able to gather statistics and I love methodology. You know, um, I guess I, I just, a big part of um, my narrative is I'm always trying to improve myself. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm never satisfied with who I am. Yeah. And I always want to be someone different. In terms of methodology, where, where, where I get passionate about it is applying it to evalu evaluating programs or, or anything, really. Just evaluating our actions, our activities, what we're doing, and, and, and learning from what we're doing. Like, our, our, it, you know, typically when we, when we do something, when we do an activity, there's a purpose behind it. There's an outcome that we want to achieve. Yeah. And so I guess for me, I want to know, are we achieving the outcomes and can we do a better job? And what else are we achieving? Because, you know, especially lately, I'm getting really curious about what we, the unintended consequences. It's very like, for instance, a conversation. I was just reading a book by a gentleman, Paul Bourne. And he talks about the different, what's going on when we have a, a, a conversation, which, and there's so many different things, like even right now that are going on. Um, when, it, when he's talking about it, the context is community conversations. So a lot of people, if, if you want change in the community, a grassroots movement, you know, you bring people to the table to talk about it. But what's actually happening, right? Like you're not only, like the purpose is to come up with ideas. But one of the unintended consequences that is rarely measured is buy-in. Also, you know, you're getting buy-in from the community when everyone comes together and has this talk. Yeah. So what else is going on? Just recognizing that this is a way to get buy-in makes these community conversations so much more valuable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just in terms of methodology, just I'm, I'm curious. I want to know. I just find that um, creating methods to find out 
is where it's at. And, and that goes with everything, programs, life. Yeah. I, I apply, <laughs> I find I apply um, methodologies to all aspects of my life, um, especially there's some areas at work where um, I'm naturally biased. Um, I just, working with the youth per se, may, maybe, um, for example, I might just really like the youth and want them to succeed and have a super soft spot, which can blind me to what's actually happening. Yeah. Um, so I have to set up indicators <clears throat> like, uh, okay, so if this youth is going to progress, what are the indicators of progress uh, of progressing? Otherwise, if I just go by like my feelings or my guts or what I'm, uh, you know, seeing might just be like, no, this individual is doing great. They're doing great. They're doing great, but really they're not. Yeah. So yeah, methodology, I think is just really important if we actually want to discover the facts and identify what's going on in our lives and around us. We have to, it's not even just science, just in, in our general lives, we have to have a method that's, to figure it out. That's so true. Because if you think about how many indicators do we have on whether or not we're progressing in our job, we're there every day, but we're never figuring out whether or not we're improving, whether we're static, what's going on there when we're doing most things university, we're consistently expecting maybe Bs all throughout from year one to year four. And you think about, well, that's not really progressing. That's staying in the exact same spot for four years straight. Maybe you're exposing yourself to harder topics, but. Well, let's not forget Cs get degrees. Yeah. And, but that mindset is not about progression. It's about staying in the same spot, which is really interesting that you could apply that and say, well, first semester, first year, I got a C minus, but year four, in second semester, you could have all A's if you were to try and progress in the same direction. So how how do you apply that to youth? Because that seems so interesting to be working with someone who you would naturally be biased towards. That's probably one of the hardest parts of working with youth is that they are filled with potential. They they have the whole world in front of them. How does that how does that weigh into your mind? How do you you just write down indicators? Actually, um the agency has already got, has that set up. The agency I work for, Chilak Community Services, yeah. um, we already have a, a setup. So um, we're accredited through an international accreditation agency called CARF. And so uh, what, what we do is we create a service plan the moment we start working with the youth, or at least when I start working with the youth and, and, and youth support. Um, what we do after, after we meet with the youth and is uh, we create a service plan. And that's where the youth identifies their the goals that they want. So their self-identified goals. And then I help them create an action plan. How are we gonna get to these goals? And in doing so, and then we create indicators of success. So, and, and it can just be really simple. Um, if the youth says, I wanna graduate high school. Um, an indicator, uh, you know, we can have a couple different indicators. Um, obviously one of the indicators is getting a, a diploma. Um, but you know, other simpler indicators to help measure them getting there are attendance. Yeah. Um, and you know, so might get, uh, permission from the youth to check on their attendance. And, and, and for me, and I, I'm just using the attendance one cause it's a really helpful one in, in, because you're not going to graduate high school if you're not showing up to school. Yeah. Right. And in the past, when, when we, when I haven't checked on this, I, I've had youth, you know, basically blowing smoke up my ass and I really like these youth. So I've just bought into it. And then, you know, fast forward months or a year ahead. And it's like, well, what do you mean? You haven't been going to school. You've been telling me this whole time you've been going to school. Yeah. Right. But I never, I, I didn't do my due diligence. I 
didn't set up the indicators, you know, especially at the beginning, I was in a different position reconnect. And I was learning and I didn't quite, I just took everything at face value. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, if the youth said something, I just automatically assumed it was correct. Yeah. And I don't feel that that was as helpful as the, as, as using indicators, because again, when, when a youth has a goal, when they've identified a goal, I want to graduate from high school and said, okay, so how are we going to do it? We come up with this plan. They say, well, I'm going to show up four days a week at least. Okay. So when we find out though, that looking at the attendance, when I check in once a month or once every two months, whatever it is, the attendance isn't there. Then we can say, Hey, why aren't you going to school? Like what's going on? It's just an indication that they're not, they're not going to be successful. Right. So it's just those little things. And it, it, it really isn't complicated, right? It, but it makes such a big difference just setting up these indicators and then just going by the indicator. That's so interesting because most people don't come up with goals for their life. Like if you think about that's a really good way of approaching things and you could hold your, like yourself accountable in that way of saying, I should try and complete these tasks and this is success within my own life and actually define it. But most people have no idea what success would look like every day in their life. It's like one day I would like to be a lawyer and they don't lay out the details of what that would look like. Yeah. I, you know, I'm lucky. I love logic models. And so I, I, I use logic models a lot and that basically it's a, it's a plan to lay it out. So it's, it starts with my goal. And then if you envision a pyramid, it starts with the goal at the top and then it moves down, right? It, the outcomes, because those, those outcomes are going to impact whether I reach my goal. Yeah. Those outcomes below them are the activities, yeah. right? So, and, and I do that on a personal level. I do that for any of the programs that I'm working with. And I also do that um, sometimes with my youth is we just lay out, you know, that action plan that I'm talking to. I'll lay it out a lot like a, a logic model. It's essentially what it is. So it, it's just, it's just a way of looking at it. It's working backwards. It's saying, this is what I want to, this is where I want to go. How am I going to get there? Well, these are the outcomes that are needed to get there. Okay. Well, how am I going to get those outcomes? These are the activities. Okay. What resources do I need? <laughs> yeah. And just work, working backwards. And I, I find it to be pretty successful, at least on a personal level. And I'd like to say with some of, you know, with the youth that we're, I'm working with at work, I've seen these service plans really help, you know, meet their goals. That makes sense because it makes, well, it makes logical sense that if you spend time each day you have to do certain things. You have to brush your teeth. You have to take these small little steps in your day. And if you actually do them properly and make sure that that is just a part of your schedule that you don't range on and ignore for a certain amount of time, that those things will improve within your life. If you clean your room 15 minutes a day, it's probably going to be clean by the end of the week because you've put in 15 minutes each day and that adds up. And it kind of sounds like the same idea is that it's not just about one exam. It's about attending all the classes then doing the exam. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you apply that in your own life? <laughs> well, it's so funny. I don't know if this is my life, but chatting with my son, my oldest son, he's 13. And we literally just had that conversation where, you know, if you just spend, I don't need you to clean your room entirely, but spend 15 minutes a day on it, right? Yeah. Like always be chipping away at it. Chip, chip, chip. Yeah. And yeah. And his room is actually really clean right now. So I'm stoked. Well, and we could apply that to so many more complex things than just a room. You could apply that to wanting to be in a different career in five years and say, these are the steps I would have to take in order to get there. And I would have to do 15 minutes a day of studying. I would have to research what school I want to go to for 10 minutes a day. I would have to do these little things that will eventually bring you to your, your final goal. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that was always in me. Like I said, because ever, ever since I was... 
as, as long as I can remember, I've always been about improving myself. I've never been satisfied with who I am yeah. and I've always wanted to improve myself. So I think that I've just always been looking for methods and ways to improve myself. And, and, and of course, you know, I want to be able to identify that I've done better too. So almost measuring, and again, not, this hasn't been academic always, but just on my own, at my own level, just uh, finding ways to measure if I, I might measure success. Yeah we have to get into it because your your life is so interesting to me because you did start out from just basically the polar opposite of self-improvement every day and looking for those things. Where where did all of that come from? That probably would have came from my role model or my mentor, yeah. uh, Ken. I mean, I've had a few different role models and a few different mentors, but uh, you know, the, the, the one in my life that just stays true would be uh, Ken. Okay. Who he uh, started off as my ISP worker. What is that? Uh, it's like a specialized, it, it's an intense supervision when you're on probation. Yeah. Um, so they identified me as being someone who I wasn't, I was, I was a risky youth, I guess, or an at-risk youth. They didn't feel it was in the community's best interest for me just to come and visit my probation officer once every couple of weeks. So they assigned a, a youth worker to f- track me down in the community and meet with me once or twice a week. And yeah. And how did he play a role in your life? What what happened there that, that worked? He took a trauma-informed approach, definitely. So he, what he did was different than what anyone else did. Because when, when I finally met him, I was living in a group home. I'd been kicked out of my school district after I got into it at the school district office with my probation or not probation with my principal and some of the higher ups. Yeah. I think I wound up jumping on the table and kicking books at them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I was a rowdy 14 year old. So he came in at a time when I, I just, everybody was, everybody was my enemy. I identified everyone as my enemy. They were trying to limit my freedom. They're trying to take stuff away from me. And he just came in very different and it seemed like he wanted to empower me right off the bat. And he came in with this book. Uh, it's called The Tao of Leadership. It's an amazing book. It's by a guy named um, John Hyder. And essentially what it is, is it takes Taoism, you know, the tradition, that the, the book, Tao Te Ching. And it turned, and, and it, John Hyder interpreted it through a, a leadership lens. John Hyder, he was a psychologist and he, he reinterpreted it. And that's what uh, Ken used to engage and interact with me. So initially I didn't really want to engage with them, but uh, he was willing to take me out for a burger and some fries and he'd play chess with me a little bit. And, and, and then he would re- open up this book that would have these little poems and he just, you know, asked me to read it and get my, my feedback on it. And essentially, you know, the, the biggest one was uh, what has, was happening when nothing is happening. Um, it was just a little riddle. And I just always remember it because it was the first riddle he ever told me that I started to understand and it started getting that process working. Yeah. And um, yeah, so he just, he worked at empowering me. He he really used the chess. I didn't realize at the time, but when he was, when he was playing chess with me, he was gauging where I was at and, and he was finding, not only was he engaging with me, but he was, he, yeah, he was finding where I was at. And then, and then he was kind of filling in the gaps. So when he was seeing these gaps and I had a lot of cognitive gaps, I, I couldn't see the processes. I just, I would jump from zero to 100 yeah. and didn't see anything in between. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he, he just worked, he worked at the gaps with me. I remember one time, this is an awesome story and you would not get away with it nowadays. No. But I remember telling him like, fuck the system, your rules suck, the system sucks, anarchy rules, you know, and he said, really? And we're driving down from the Hart Highway in Prince George and we're going the back roads, this Highlands, it was called. 
And all of a sudden he flies and it's a highway and he flies two lanes over into oncoming, like where the oncoming, there, there was no traffic, but we're oncoming traffic and he's flying down the hill and I'm like, what is going on? And he's going really fast and he's accelerating. And I asked him like, what, what the hell are you doing, man? What are you doing? And he was like, what do you mean? Fuck the rules, man. Yeah. And he's, and I'm like, you're going to get us killed. You're not allowed to do this. This is crazy. And he's like, I can do whatever I want. There's no rules. Yeah. Uh, eventually after I start panicking, I freak out and you know, he goes back in he was like, well, I thought rules didn't matter. Yeah. When all of a sudden rules, you know, matter. And that was a huge, and again, I'm not saying that was a, uh, well, yeah, flying down the highway on the wrong side. Yeah. Uh, definitely <laughs> not recommending that to any youth workers. Yeah. But wow, did it ever have a lasting impact on me? And did it ever shift my thinking? Or yeah. I had to, I literally had to ask myself, well, do rules matter? Yeah. <laughs> because I was scared shitless in that, at that moment. It really had an impact on me. Fair enough. That is, that is incomprehensible to have <laughs> gone through something like that and to learn something from it. And obviously that was kind of his intent to put you in that circumstance. We're not advising this, but it is interesting that you can get something out of something that we would never be allowed to do today. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what else happened there? Um, well, uh, eventually he took me in. He, he became my foster dad. Really? Yeah. Did and he do that for other people or? He did. Yeah. yeah. Um, he had a, kind of like a suite in his basement. There, there was my foster brother, Robin, and then there was myself. And it was really good because Ken took that opportunity. I think he, even though I didn't realize it at the time, I, I leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses the way I did, um, I lost my culture, basically. And I was cultureless. And, and at the time, I was running with an indigenous street gang, I guess. So Ken took the opportunity. He he realized I was already interested in indigenous culture. Well, not that most of my friends at the time were indigenous. So yeah, um, and 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 Ken's indigenous, and um, he just he he started teaching me a little bit about the cultures and introducing me to people. I remember going to my first sweat, which was again one of those one of those times in life that it it it, it, it changed my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, it just overall worked to empower me. Even even when I got kicked out of his house, it was empowerment because as he put it, like we 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 had come to an agreement. I would do A, B, and C, and he would do A, B, you know, A, B, and C. And if either one of us failed to meet this, there was consequences. I quit school. So I wasn't meeting the obligations. And he was like, nope, you know, this area is for someone who is working towards goals. You identified these goals. Now you're saying no. You had said that if that was the case, you'd be leaving. So now you can leave. Yeah. It was the first time I got kicked out of a house without like someone being mean to me about it. Yeah. And it was weird because I wasn't even angry because I couldn't blame him because well, I guess it was one of the first times of my teenage life I owned something. Yeah. And I realized this was me. I made the choice that got me into this um, situation that I'm, I don't like and I'm uncomfortable with. Yeah. Um, and then he stuck by me though right? Like he didn't, he wasn't angry. There was zero anger. Um, it was just, I got to teach you this. Yeah. And now I'm going to support you to show you how not to fall flat on your face. Yeah. <laughs> um, which he did, right? He supported me the whole time. That's amazing because you, you were able to, for the first time, make a mistake or make a judgment call and take complete ownership of it. And not have anyone say that you're a bad person, that you're a fool, that you're not going to succeed and you're going to fail without them, which is what a lot of people do when you don't take their advice to the T. 
Yeah. Yeah. And he did the opposite, which was really empowering because, um, for me, like group homes and, uh, you know, probation officers and other workers that I'd been with, it was so disempowering. It was, if you don't listen to us, you're going to get it. We're going to, you know, you're just going to fail. And, and that's, that just wasn't the approach he took. He took a very empowerment. Like, what is it that you want to do? How are we going to get there? And he never went about things telling me like, that's good or that's bad. Um, which was awesome because there was so much, um, baggage with good and bad for me because I, 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 it was very religious. Yeah. Um, so he switched the narrative on that to just, there's negative consequences and positive consequences. Uh, what, what one do you want? That makes sense. Cause that's, I talked about this before, but that's the case with most things is no matter how high the goal you have to pay a consequence for it and you have to be willing to, obviously, if you're going to university, I think I used this before, you're going to have to pay for it. So there's a financial consequence to wanting the best for yourself. And if you're going to educate yourself to try and get this better job that will pay more, you're going to have to suffer for the next couple of years to get to that point. And telling someone that just obeying all the rules, you'll pay no consequences isn't true. You have to figure out what the consequences are and if there's a way to deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So where did you go from, from there after that? Because you obviously worked with Ken, um, you left school and where did you go after that? I moved, I moved down to, uh, Langley. I moved in with my sister, uh, cause my parents weren't an option and Ken's house wasn't an option. Group homes weren't an option cause I just went AWOL. Uh, yeah, so I moved, I moved to Langley, Walnut Grove, and I started going to school, uh, at Walnut Grove secondary. And, and that was really cool. Um, it was very eye opening. I got to see, I just got to see something different than Prince George, than what I was used to. Yeah. And, uh, it, it really showed me that there was more out there than just that little piece of land that I was so willing to live and die by up yeah. in Prince George. Right. Yeah. It was really great up until, um, without getting into it, got into a confrontation at a party with some youth. They went a little gangster on me and jumped me. So I thought I could, yeah. So I took the, I, I, long story short, I got kicked out of Langley. Yeah. Um, and I had to go back to Prince George and then I, I had to do a little bit of time on house arrest and then in juvie because of what, how I'd responded to those guys in Langley. Yeah. And, um, that was a big change too. It happened at the right time. And I know, you know, our backgrounds are criminology. So of course, we're going to say youth shouldn't be locked up. Yeah. But I'm glad I got locked up. Um, and, and the reason being isn't because I was a menace to society and I was, but it's the people who I was surrounded by. And I don't mean the youth I was locked up with. I mean, the COs, the correctional officers, they were so positive and they so wanted us to do well. <laughs> it was, it wasn't how I had thought jail would have been Yeah. or juvie. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, they really focused, uh, I, I, I got stuck in, I got put into this program almost immediately called the Bowron house. And what it was, was we didn't have bars on our windows. It was a house on the property. We could come and go as we pleased. If we wanted, like we could enter and leave the house. And we focused on health on just built on healthy activities. Uh, so it, it was, we'd wake up and, you know, we'd, we'd eat, we'd work out, we'd do some schooling. Um, we'd go on nature walks or swimming, reading, but it was just, our days were filled with activities and therapy. And again, 
um, a lot of the correctional officers, they actually knew people who I knew in the community. And it just made it, it was eye-opening for me. Just to see these folks who were in such a position of authority, I mean, but they, they never really treated me bad, despite they had so much power. I mean, a correctional officer has so much power over you. They treated me really well, and they really seemed to care about me. And it, it had an impact. I went out to juvie that time with the idea that I wasn't going back and I wanted to uh, do something with my life. Yeah. And then, cause that's just phenomenal that, that that exists. And I don't think as a community, we call great support out as much as I think we should. We thank the person individually, but saying that this whole system that we would call pretty negative is criminology students had such a positive impact and that individuals had such a positive impact is the whole purpose of the podcast is that I believe there's people out there that make a difference, that turn things around for people, and we never talk about them. And you're an example of if you took just a report card of your youth and said, well, how is this person going to turn out where you are today and the difference you make and you're, you educate me and you educate lots of people on important topics and kind of show that that stigma is a bad idea and that there, we don't get a lot from it. So where did you go after once you decided I'm not going back to juvie? Well, there, there was a, a period and I won't get into it, but it was just kind of uh, the best description would be tumultuous. Yeah. Um, a lot of growth. There was, there were, there was moving forward, moving back, moving forward, moving back. And it culminated in, in, in me deciding to leave Prince George. I was about 19 and uh, my, my bio parents had moved to Ontario where my grandparents live. And I decided to move out to Prince George because despite me trying, you know, I, I, I feel I worked really hard. Um, but the, the group that I hung out with, I loved them so much and I just couldn't bring myself to completely disassociate with that group yeah and it kept bringing me back down bringing me back down so i left prince george and um it was great i moved to ontario and i just decided to start over again so i didn't i didn't tell anybody about my history my background i pretended like i had a perfect life (laughs) um i i remember working uh, i got a job uh serving food at a restaurant which was amazing. I, I just loved it. Um, and I was hanging out with the servers and the servers are, they're a chipper kind of crowd, you know, they're, they're smiley, they're happy, they're fun, everything. They're everyone that, you know, they're the crew that I always wanted to hang out with, but never got a chance to. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of mimicked them. Yeah. Um, you know, I made up stories about going to <laughs> Disneyland, you know, with my family, I had the perfect family life, all of this. And it was really good because for the first time in my life, I got to just fit in, yeah. even if it was based on BS. Yeah. Um, it was the first step of kind of feeling what normalcy would look like. Absolutely. Yeah. It was great. Um, nobody knew who I was and I could just be who I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, eventually, the, it, it, it started to feel shallow. Yeah. Um, and I just, I wanted to just explore. So um, I wound up moving from Ontario uh, to Calgary. The intention was to move to Vancouver or Surrey, I think, but uh, I stopped in at Calgary and visited uh, my cousin. And Calgary was, it was such a fun city at the time. It was so young, it was booming. Uh, so I stuck around there and um, 
I wound up again, working in a, in a, a restaurant bartending. Um, and that was an amazing, it was really amazing. Um, and I kind of started, I started off with that pretending to be someone else. Um, uh, but my past, we were close enough to Prince George that my past caught up with me and some shit hit the fan. So the people I worked with got to know a little bit more actually about me and they still accepted me, Yeah, <laughs> which was really cool. That, that was a very interesting point where I, I started accepting who I was like, and kind of m melding who I was with who I wanted to be yeah, and, and, and not being super scared of it and, and, and letting people into my life a little bit, telling them a little bit about who I was and, you know, my history. Yeah. I went through that as well because growing up, I didn't tell many people about the struggles I went through and it was nice to get, go to school and to come across as normal and to kind of keep my home life at home and keep my school life at school. But over time I have kind of let some of that go. I think like 16, 17, 18, I started to realize that most of the people I know don't really know who I am. And so trying to face that, I started to slowly say like, hey, this is some of my background. This was my childhood. And the immediate reaction was, how have I known you for like 15 years? And you've never said a thing about it. And that, that was a huge growing point because at first it was like such a shame hideaway thing that I've been through these things and I know this life. And then it kind of helped the relationship with people once they knew that I did have vulnerabilities that I did have. And that's where you're starting to break down those walls and share those things with people. Yeah. I found the same thing, Aaron. Like I couldn't figure out why I didn't have a lot of close friends a lot in, in certain periods of my life. And, and, and one, you know, in Ontario, that was, that was one of them where I, I couldn't get close to anybody because I was so full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, that's, it's hard to eat vulnerability is just part of intimacy. Yeah. Right. If, if you want to be close with people, you, you, you got to become vulnerable. Absolutely. And you cover it up in so many weird ways. Cause one of them was that I owned a car and like, not that I owned a car, but my family owned a car and we didn't. Um, and then people would expect like, well, why don't you come to this location? And I'd be like, well, the car's in the shop. Like there was clear reasons why I wasn't attending and it was just too hard to admit because you want to fit in. Yeah. And the, the acting like you're fitting in is the very thing that removes you from the ability to say, I don't have a vehicle. Would you be able to drive me? Like, that's the, the very thing that's preventing you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So from there, you're now in Calgary and people are starting to know, where do you go from there? I just had a lot of fun in Calgary and, um, but too much fun. I bartending, it was just one big party. And I don't think I was, I don't think there was a, I went for about a year and I don't think I was sober even one day. Really? Yeah. And I'm not saying like I was fall, you know, falling on my face drunk every day, but again, just the serving crowd. Um, I worked at this place, the Metropolitan Grill right on 17th Ave and it was so fun and it, it was just a nonstop party. And, you know, after work we would like go out to the other bars, like the whiskey or the drink and we'd just party all night long. It was so much fun, but my brother, um, not my biological brother, but uh, my brother, Chris, who um, we, we kind of, when I was about 14, 15, we just found each other and connected. He, he brought me home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I had no home to go to one day and he just, he kept me. <laughs> but he just called me up and he was like, man, you're going to become an alcoholic. And, you know, his, his bio dad, he, he had had some, he'd witnessed what alcoholism, you know, the, the leads to. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, I'm coming to get you. 
And I was drunk talking to him like, oh yeah, that sounds like a plan. And you can imagine how surprised I was the next day when he actually showed up yeah. to get me and was like, no. And my roommate was really ticked too. What was that like <laughs> to have somebody care so much and to believe what they're telling you and to follow through on it? It's hard to explain. Yeah. You know, it meant a lot. Yeah. And still does. So yeah, I went back. We went back and he he was going through an interesting time himself. So when I had left Prince George, he he had he'd climbed the ranks of like the thugs and the gangsters. Um and he had gotten to a really scary place and he decided to leave. Uh so he had moved away from from Prince George. Um and he also had uh, a son. We we just focused on work and just hanging out and hanging out with his kid. It was one of the greatest, like one of the best times of my life that going to Abbotsford and um, meeting my nephew, you know, not for the first time, but, you know, cause I was there when he was a baby, but yeah. Uh, just, yeah. And he, he was just, he was just awesome. And he was just so full of life. And I, I really think that being around my nephew like that um, helped change and both me and my brother, right? Like we wanted to do better. Yeah. We didn't want to be like the shitty parents that we had witnessed with others. Yeah, we, we we focused on doing what we what we identified as being good, and yeah. that was holding down a job and staying relatively sober. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah um, for about a year or two. That was just what life was about. It was just working. Yeah, and I met my wife at the time. Where did you meet her? Uh, I met her at a, a birthday party. A friend of mine from Prince George, who is my sister in law's cousin. She worked with my wife at Randy River, this uh, clothing store that used to be around. And I didn't realize, but I guess she thought I was cute. So my sister-in-law had kind of told her, yeah, you can hook up with, uh, we'll, we'll hook you up with Trevor. So that was cool, except she didn't really talk to me throughout the night. And uh, we wound up, it was in Chilliwack here. We started off at Bozini's and we wound up at, uh, oh, what was it? Area 51, I think it was called. Where is that? Or where was that? It's where Corky's is now. Okay. So it used to be a nightclub and there was like cages and stuff in there. And uh, yeah, got pretty intoxicated. And I was walking out the door with two uh, friends, um, two female friends who had told me they were sisters. And then my sister-in-law and um, Amanda met us at the door. My sister-in-law shouldered one of the girls. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And kind of... She didn't pick a fight, but just got all rowdy. And I was like, wow, this is, I just knew I'm, I'd done something wrong. Yeah. So I went and I sat with my brother <laughs> Yeah, and he was just laughing. He was like, oh, you've done it. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, they came back and uh, my wife just looked at me and she didn't say anything. She's just staring at me. And she was like, you're a fucking prick. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so confused at the time. And we went, we left the bar. We went to um, Rhonda's house. And, um, at the end of the night, when we were all leaving, um, she just looked at me and she was like, well, are you coming or what? (laughs) And we've been together ever since. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. And so what else went on right after that? Cause I think you were working in a mill at one point, right? Yeah. Uh, so I left me, me and my wife, um, we quickly moved in, wound up moving in together and getting our own place. Um, and I just quickly realized that the type of life that we wanted in terms of finances, um, I wasn't going to be able to contribute to that life working as a bartender, as a server. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I wound up 
long story short, I wound up at the rigs in the oil rigs. And I really, really liked that. Um, and also what was going on in our life at that time is um, my wife had gotten pregnant and she'd lost the baby. So we had to find out what was going on. She really wanted children and so, so did I. And we had to go for all these tests and it, I can't remember how many, how, how many um, times we got pregnant and lost um, the babies, but it was like four or five maybe. And eventually we were told we couldn't have kids and it all happened really fast. We were told we couldn't have kids and I was working. So um, I just decided to forget it and go and work on the rigs and just focus on making money. So um, I've been working on the rigs for about a year, just over a year. And I was on days off and I was supposed to go back to the rigs the next day. And my wife gets this phone call from her cousin who lived in St. Clona. And she comes in, she looks at me and she says, do you want a baby? <laughs> I'm like, what? And she was like, my, my cousin just called me and she has a friend who didn't know she was pregnant and she's about to give birth and she wants to give the baby up for adoption, but she wants to give it to someone she knows will look after it. And we were brought up. Do you want a baby? I'm like, um, yes. I went out to the rigs. I did my two weeks. And then when I flew in, I flew back to Kelowna or no Penticton, sorry. I met my wife there and met uh, the mother. Long story short, we came home with a baby. <laughs> really? Yeah. I was in the room and everything. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a crazy feeling. I remember, well, first off, it was a really uncomfortable feeling being in a room with someone giving a natural childbirth when you've just like met them. Yeah. But when, boy, when Noah came out, like I was just overwhelmed with this feeling, like I could punch through a semi-truck or something. Like I will protect you. <laughs> yeah. I'll do whatever I have to, to make, to make life good for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was an awesome feeling. So soon after, you know, we bring Noah home and I have to go back to work and it was really difficult. And I remember like my buddies on the rigs, they, they were trying to help me. And I remember my one buddy, I think he, he was trying to give me words of comfort and he said, don't worry about it. You know, he's like, you know, my daughter, it she would, every time my wife would come and pick me up from the airport, she would cry when I got in the vehicle until she was about five because she didn't know who I was. And I was like, yeah, guys, I'm out. <laughs> I can't. Because we would, we had been told that we couldn't have children. So I was like, well, I'm not going to like spend all my time up north. I mean, I like you guys, but not that much. Yeah. I hang out with my wife and kid. And so, yeah, I went back and uh, I started working at the mill. And I remember, I remember the first time. So I went and I got this job at the mill. And I remember my first paycheck. And I think that was maybe like one of the first time and only times I cried in front of my wife. <laughs> when I just looked at that check and I started crying and I was like, I've spent more drinking with my buddies at the airport than this stupid check. Yeah. <laughs> because it's going from rig money to uh, money that you make at the mill. But we figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. It took a couple weeks, a couple paychecks and all of a sudden it became normal. Yeah. And then from there. Well, I worked at the mill for about seven years. Yeah. From there, it was just, you know, life. Yeah. But I was about 30 years old, turning 30. And my son, Noah, was getting old enough that I couldn't hide that I smoked from him. Not that he knew. And I never smoked in front of him. But he was just getting old enough that I was like, he's going to figure this out. So I decided to quit smoking. And I'd, I'd been smoking since I was about 12 years old at that point. So when I was able to quit smoking, it was a huge accomplishment. And it really boosted my confidence. Uh, so much so that I decided uh, to go back to school. And get my grade 12 because that's something that I'd never finished. And I wanted to be able to look my kid in the eye and be like, I got my grade 12. 
Yeah. So I started going to, uh, at the ed center here in Chilliwack, I started going to night school. Teacher was Sheldon. can't remember his last name now, but uh, he hangs out at the at the pub. So <laughs> yeah. I still see him every now and then, give him a wave. I don't yeah. think he remembers who I am, but he waves back. It, it was a great opportunity. Uh, the teacher was really helpful. He recognized that I was working full time, sometimes 10 to 12 hours before I would show up at the school. And he was really helpful and he didn't, uh, yeah, it was just, just a over, overall good experience. And then I got my grade 12. And when I got it, I, I got B plus honors and I was pretty excited about that. And, um, similar to that time, we'd had some issues at work and I'd also gotten involved with bringing in a union and that happened. The union, even though we were told it will never happen, that happened. So I had a lot of these kind of confidence boosters while I was at the mill and I, I decided I'm going to kick it up a notch try university, go back to university. Yeah. I, I really liked it. And actually I wound up getting a, I got a scholarship from the union to go to my, the first year of university. And I was also on paternity leave because uh, my second son was being born. Yeah. And then, so you go to university and what was, what was the first course that you had taken? Psychology 101. I took three courses, psychology 101, sociology, like the, the beginners and CRIM 100 with uh, Kevin Burke. Yeah. And what was that like? It was awesome. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I felt when I remember taking psychology and it, it, I felt like the world had been opened up to me, just like the mysteries of the world. It was one of the best feelings of my life. That first semester yeah. it was just so intense and I just loved every minute of it. And then I got my grades and I just got like straight A's or straight A pluses, I think. And I was like, what the hell? I'm not stupid. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should keep doing this because my intention wasn't to like finish university. My intention was just to take some classes so that I could say, yeah, I've done some university. Yeah. But when I got all A's or A pluses, I was like, well, maybe, maybe I should explore this a little bit more. Maybe I should look into this. So yeah. And then, and then there was the choice when I decided to leave work and become a full-time student. Yeah. That's so interesting to me because my first year of university was exactly what most people's is. It's just a transition from high school. There's not a lot of respect for the fact that you're with people who are passionate about what they're talking about or practice or research in the area they're talking about. It was, these are just other teachers who are going to tell me what to do and grade me and I'm going to have an exam and then I'm going to leave. There wasn't that difference where you went in and you were like, the world's being opened up to me. That didn't happen to me. That's happening kind of now, but it was because you don't have that same respect for it that I think you had going into it and feeling like that institution was intimidating. You went in with that recognition that that was a, a big accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was really intimidated by UFE. So I tried to go to UFE when I first came from Calgary to Abbotsford. I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and go to university. And my brother, he drove me to UFE in Abbotsford. And I went in and the office of the registrar, they were so rude to me. Which is so weird because they're so nice to me now. Like, I just love going in and talking to those folks. But um, I don't know. Maybe it was just me. Maybe it was the way I interpreted it. Maybe it just wasn't my time. Yeah. I'm not too sure. But I left. I remember I didn't even understand the words they were telling me uh, that I needed. And I, I remember fighting back to try not to cry as I walked out, feeling like a, just a complete idiot. And that was, yeah, that was in about 2000. Wow. Um, so yeah, it, it was, you know, universities can be such an intimidating institutions. I don't see it them that way at the moment or now, but yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's really true. Especially coming from that world of not feeling like that was a place you were going to go. 
and not having that ingrained in your mind because it's like middle school students now are planning their university education. Like it's given at such an early time that they take it for granted when they go. And for some people, it's not even in the picture. And that's where you were at one point in time was that you weren't even focused on that and you didn't respect yourself as a person who could think or have profound thoughts and share that with the world at one point in time. And now um, it was Jonathan Haidt's class that we had together. And I was just stunned at your marks, the information you shared with the class, your perspective. It was all so shocking and so insightful. And I had no idea everything that you'd went through prior to that. Well, thanks, Eric. That was an amazing class. Jonathan Haidt's such a good professor. I I 100% agree, but it was so unique because I had met you through restorative justice and I had met you through a class and I just thought everybody respected you in that class. There wasn't a person in there that didn't specifically know your name. And I remember that and that's how I've always remembered you because that's how you came across in that class. I didn't know that, but thanks. <laughs> what, well, just tell everybody what grade you got in some of the things in there, because it was like 99%. And what did uh, what did he say? He couldn't give you the extra percent because... there. Yeah, well, he doesn't believe that there's such a thing as a perfect paper. Yeah. But if there was a perfect paper, that would have been it. Yeah. That was a really good paper. Me and actually um, Dane, we worked on not that specific paper together, but we each, you know, how he gave the topics. We both chose the same topic. So we both really worked on that. And oh boy, I remember, I thought I could actually feel pathways being burrowed into my brain trying to figure out and work on that yeah. paper. That was a Yeah, because that's how I was introduced to you. And then hearing all of this crazy backstory of what you went through to get there made me respect the education so much more because it's like this person has gone through hell to try and get to this point. And I'm just sitting on my laurels, half paying attention, half not taking this class seriously. And that really changed my perspective during years three and four, because that was like a a second year course or like beginning of a third year course. And I had not taken a single course that seriously and said, I'm going to put 100% in. And if I get a B, I get a B, but I'm going to put everything I have into this. That was after knowing what you like a little bit about you and your experiences, because then it was like... I have no excuses. This person's gone through way more to get here than me. So I need to step up my game. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Thanks, man. That's why these things are so important is that I get to explain my experience, how I see you. And hopefully that goes through to the listeners as well, that I had no idea that you had gone to juvie, that any of these things happened to you. I just thought you were an incredibly intelligent individual. And that was right out of the gate. And then the backstory made me realize that we all can do this, that people are capable of these types of things. And so explain a little bit more of what happened after that course. Well, there was, a, there was kind of a lot going on there. So I was working with Yvonne Dandrand at the time too. One of the big changes for me was working on a project with them on justice metrics, measuring the justice system and using indicators. That was my introduction to like the formal idea of measure, measurements and methodology. So I, I took that and I ran with it. After that, you know, and I kind of incorporated that my third and my fourth year, almost everything incorporated evaluation, in particular collective impact. And uh, I really paid attention to stats. Um, I really, really worked hard on um, stats. And um, I I took every opportunity I could to work uh, with professors and, and just, yeah, increasing my knowledge. Yeah. And then you graduated in what year? 2016. 
And then you've been working now with children. So I was actually really lucky to, um, when I graduated and, uh, Leanna Kemp, who was the executive director at restorative justice at the time, uh, called me up and let me know about this new position with Chilliwack community services. Uh, it was an outreach worker for homeless youth. And, and the whole position was to try to um, get them housed. So I went, I put in my resume uh, with um, Chua Community Services, and I was lucky enough to get hired and um, and start that position and, and, and really help. It was it was neat because it was a brand new position, so so nobody had ever done it before. So I got the opportunity to develop it uh, with and the person who was the um, coordinator at the time, Kate Healy. And, and we really got to, from the bottom up. Yeah. And it, and, and it, it was an amazing opportunity. I learned so much and it, it, it was, it was a huge learning experience. It took a lot of what we learned in university and really some of it, it just made it so like, oh, what we learned made so much sense. And this is why we needed to learn it. And a lot of other stuff. I was just like, why, what? Yeah. <laughs> this has, you know, on the ground, it's so different than what we learned, especially in terms of policy interpretation. Uh, you know, when you come out of university being like, no, I, I read the policy. I know what it means. Yeah. And then you're on the ground and everyone's like, yeah, we all have a different interpretation of that policy. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and we follow that, right? Because you think like, if a policy says this, everybody has to listen and do it this way. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a, that, that was a, boy, that was a tough piece of reality for me to grasp. And I really caused some ruckus at the beginning and really pissed a few people off, stepped on a few toes, which was good though, because me stepping on those toes, there was actually one point where I really, really ticked off a social worker. Yeah. Um, and she put in a complaint saying like, I just, uh, I was, she couldn't work with me. Yeah. So when, when, when my, my, my supervisors looked into it and had to talk with me, what they recognized was yes. I did have a right to be pretty chapped because policy wasn't being followed. But that being said, um, sometimes relationships are more important than policy or yeah. just as important as policy. So what they decided was to work on, they decided to give me some extra support on, on, on how to work with people. That was really great. It was good. It definitely changed. Well, it just, it just kept, you know, it, it just kept me growing. I mean, I'm still growing, right? Um, but yeah, it definitely, uh, I started to realize just how important relationships in this community was. And now I'm at a point where I believe that the relationships are more important than the policy. <laughs> yeah. You know, whereas initially I would have said policy is way more important than relationships. Yeah. So. That's so interesting because you did really go full circle. Now you're in the position of helping youth go get through their issues and you are actually their role model. And you can say sincerely that I've been through similar circumstances or I know I have some understanding of what you're going through and you're the person in that role trying to help. Yeah. And, and that's been a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, obviously being able to put myself in their shoes to feel the empathy, you know, have some understanding. It's been really helpful. On the other hand, in particular, when I first started, sometimes I felt too much. It was almost overwhelming. And and I started to, boundaries were crossed and it was hard for me kind of distinguish what they were feeling versus what I was feeling. Yeah. So there was a lot of work done on boundaries, creating boundaries so that I could take, so that the experiences that I had could be useful to, to the youth I was working with yeah. instead of just kind of throwing it 
just going through it together. Well, yeah, or just, you know, sometimes when I saw youth being mistreated at a group home, one example, right? Well, I had experiences of being mistreated in a group home. So my reaction, I could have, you know, I should have started at 10, then went to 15, and then went to 20. Yeah. But my reaction was zero to 100. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I bypassed all these other processes and just jumped right to like the representative of the child and the youth, like screw you guys. I'm going to get you. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and that's not the purpose of the representative of the child and youth is not to get anybody. It's to create that dialogue, create those conversations. But again, being so new, I just, I didn't realize that I didn't, I didn't understand how important the relationships were. Yeah. Well, and you'd been there before. So when you see somebody else in the position you were in, it's like immediately I want to react and, help everyone who is in that circumstance because I know what that's like. Yeah, but I was kind of interpreting it through the eyes of a youth too, right? Where I, So when I was a kid and I was getting kind of screwed over um, at my group home, that's how I interpreted it. It's like, you're out to get me. You're trying to harm me. And what I've come to realize as a worker is people don't become social workers or group home workers or anything like that because they want to screw over kids. Typically, everybody wants the same outcomes. They want a safe community for the children and now where we get confused is we don't all agree on how to get there yeah <laughs> right but that's i've come to really like that initially at the beginning i didn't like that i was like nope i've read the textbooks the policy says this this is what we have to do i know this yeah um and and you don't yeah. <laughs> and now i'm like i don't really know what you know content everything is so different you know every everything's different i don't know and i don't want to assume that you're trying to screw over a youth yeah what's going on and, and, and having that kind of like that taking the position of unknowing and, and not assuming it has made all the difference and and a lot of those people who initially i was like oh this person's no good at their job they you know they're harming this youth all of a sudden i'm like whoa they are good at their job they aren't harming this youth yeah they, you know it, this is you know I, I may not have gone the same approach <laughs> as they are to but they're not doing anything wrong. And, and instead of fighting with them, which takes resources away from the client, yeah, let's work together. Let's, you know, just keep it, keep it going. Yeah. Not to say that if someone's in the wrong, you don't call them on it, but um, people aren't in the wrong as often as I thought they were yeah. <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> and that's, that's probably true for a lot of different positions. Cause even in my role, we work with different people, but the goal is to see where the overlap is, see where we agree. And then, maybe the parts that we disagree kind of fade away when we're working together and just assuming that the person does have good intent is probably a good place to start rather than assuming the worst and trying to figure out what matches that viewpoint, which I think a lot of people do. Yeah. 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 No, finding, finding that common ground. That's yeah. always your best bet. I found a hundred percent because we, we get so caught up in what we view as the worst thing possible. And obviously that arises when you're working with youth is what could be the worst thing that could happen to this person. And the second you see somebody moving towards what you believe is that, it's like, well, then you've got the bad intent because you're steering it in that direction, even though that might not be the case. And we just might need more information. The other question I wanted to touch on was role models in our community. That's obviously what the podcast is about, is trying to build some of those people up who are already doing really good things in the community. Would you be able to touch on that at all? Because you work with youth? Absolutely. Um, I think our our community, uh, typically the group of individuals in our community working with youth, um, they do act as role models. Uh, a great example is the REC program that Chillac Community Services puts on. Um, 
the pr- one of the previous rec workers, uh, Steve. He, I, I witnessed him uh, as act as a great role model. Um, in fact, so he left the program a while ago. There's been two people since, and some of the youth who you know they they've they're maybe 13, 14 at the time, and now they're you know. 16, 17, and they still talk about him and they still seek him out. Um, at the last Christmas party I was at, um, one of the youth that used to be in, in well, every youth that used to be in his program that was at the Christmas party asked for him. Yeah. Right. They want to know what he's doing. Um, they just absolutely love him. We, we took a picture. There's a photo booth and of all the kids, you know, they would want two pictures. Oh, here's one for you and make sure Steve gets one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so he impacted, and these are youth who, um, they're doing really good. And, um, they didn't necessarily, that wasn't necessarily the trajectory that was identified <laughs> when people first met them. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I really feel that, um, we do have a really good setup for role models here in, in Chilliwack, whether it's like the rec program, or, or uh, Cyrus Center, just the whole setup of how Cyrus Center um, is, it, it seems like everyone there is set up to be a role model, whether yeah. you're the director or whether you're a volunteer. Um, so yeah, I, I think that we have a lot of great role models in our community um, and from all different sectors, even um, like the religious sector, there's a lot of youth pastors and pastors out there um, who are just amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and just great role models and great people to have in the community. So yeah, we're, we're really privileged here in Chilliwack. That's awesome. It was awesome to have you on. I think that based on your experience through your youth and where you're going now is so important for people to realize that it doesn't matter where you start. It just matters that you're, you're continuing to try and move in the right direction and learning about your past after knowing about how smart you are in John's class was really humbling and it really set the stage for this. So I'm so grateful to have you on. Cool, man. It was really fun to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron.